True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. What is Stephen? What is your emergency? I um yeah. I need an ambulance. Lots of um you need an been, ambulance. Yes, please. What's your name, sir? Uh, Henry from Bradar. Henry, what's the yes. contact number you're phoning from? Um, my home phone number, but um, I'm not sure what the home phone number is. My cell phone. Uh, we're at 12 Horska Street, please. What is this number that you're phoning from? <sighs> is there someone else that can speak if you're not able to? No. I'm Who else is in the house? There's no one else. Uh, everyone I need else the is. contact number, please. Yeah, okay. 021. 021. Double eight double zero. Double eight double zero. Four nine three. Four nine three. And you need the ambulance to go to what? Number twelve, Horska Street. Horska. Horska. G O S. G O S. K E. What area is this? It's in Stellenbosch, and it's it's in the Zolta Estate. Number twelve, Horska Street in yes. Stellenbosch. Yes. I'm not picking it up with Stellenbosch. I'm picking it up with Bertus of Molniton. The Zoltzer Wineland is the, is the estate. Stellenbosch is the town. And I'm um, Hoske Street, number 12. Okay, Hoske Street. And you the patient? No, no. My family is someone attacked my family. Hey? Someone has attacked my family in my house. Okay, so you need the police or the well, ambulance. And an ambulance, please. Yes. Now, who is um, injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house? Everyone, four people, yes. Okay. Okay, what kind of injuries is there? Um, my, my, my family and we were attacked by a guy with an oh. axe. With an axe? Her unconscious is... Unconscious, huh? Yes, and bleeding from the head, please. Okay. Okay, then. Okay, how, how long will the ambulance take? Uh, it won't be too long. They'll send the ambulance out as soon as okay. possible. In an upmarket estate in Stellenbosch, South Africa, a young child wakes in the early hours of the morning. The child's mother doesn't understand at that moment what's woken him. She's heard nothing and has no way of knowing what's happening in the large house across the road from her, in Koska Street. Three hours later, sirens split the peaceful morning lull, and emergency vehicles surround the home. A young man sits outside the house. His bare torso is cut, and a small trickle of blood from one injury has already dried. His shorts are also splattered with blood, but it's not his. As paramedics enter the house and attend to what one medic would call the most horrific scene of his 39-year career, South Africa will soon find itself questioning some of its most dearly held beliefs, chief among these, the safety of the family unit. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 52 the Van Breda Family Murders, Part 1. 
Before we get into today's case, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Tracy Moritz, Wendy Dammit, Chantal Roma, Nicholas Huthloff, P. Lithoa, Kay Mayers, Tanya Silba, and Candice Faree for their support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. Ordinarily, in going into an episode, I would tell you how I'd heard about the case I'm covering. But I think in this episode, it may be shorter to let you know where I hadn't heard about it. Because really, when it happened, and in the ensuing years when the trial was held, it was everywhere. This case was not just widely discussed in South Africa, it was widely discussed across the world. The family in question had taken up residence in Australia for quite some time, so the Australian press was all over it as well. After the Oscar Pistorius case was televised across South Africa in 2014, it became more acceptable for cases in which it was deemed to be in the public interest to be available for viewing to the South African public, and the trial in this case became the next to be followed minute by minute. It is for this reason, I believe, that there is such a huge amount of evidence in the public domain about this case, and as a result, an enormous number of differing opinions. The case has been covered on a number of podcasts and YouTube channels. I tend not to listen to any other podcasts on the cases I'm covering before I do them, as I prefer not to risk being influenced by these before I present my own version. I did watch several of the YouTube videos available, as many of these deal with alternate theories in the case. I also watched as much of the trial as I could find. I would say that I probably watched about 40 hours of court footage. I also relied heavily on the book The Dissolzer Murders by Julian Janssen. Julian is a journalist who followed the case from the moment it broke, and I was lucky enough to have Julian answer some of my questions about the case, and you'll hear him talk about a few points throughout the episode. This episode is the first in which I have had a member of the SAPS officially provide me with information about physical evidence. Captain Marius Hubert is a bloodstain pattern and crime scene analyst with the South African Police Service in the Western Cape, and he worked on this case and testified in court during the trial. He kindly answered questions that I had about the blood evidence and provided me with detailed responses, diagrams, and photographs. I think that this episode is undeniably the one that I've put the most hours into researching. 
To be honest, I wish that I had as much information in other cases too. But then you may only get one episode a month, if that. I am splitting this case into two parts, which is just necessary because there's so much information. But I will do my best to get part two out as soon as possible. There are varying opinions about the guilt of the perpetrator in this case and I'll do my best to present evidence that either supports or refutes all views. Most importantly, though, I'll do my best to remember the victims, and the human beings that they were, before they were so cruelly ripped away. So let's get into part one of episode 52, The Fun Bradar Family Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. After Martin van Breda matriculated from Kusvach High School in Toti. He went on to study civil engineering at Stellenbosch University. This is perhaps where his love for the beautiful Western Cape Town came from, and it became his dream to live in Stellenbosch. After earning his degree, Martin studied further and earned an MBA at the University of Pretoria. He started his first job in Pretoria soon after, and it would be here that he met a young lady that happened to work in the same street as him. Teresa Dutoy was one of seven children, and she'd grown up in the Johannesburg suburb of Florida. Her father, Dr. Rudy Dutoy, encouraged his daughter to study computer science, as it would be a flourishing industry in the future. Teresa earned her degree at the Rand Afrikaans University, which is now the University of Johannesburg. She started out working for IBM and then moved into the banking space. When the couple met in 1983, it was apparently love at first sight. But with both being significantly career-focused people, it would take them seven years to tie the knot. On the 16th of February 1990, Teresa de Toy became Teresa van Breda, and the couple started their life together. Martin is said to have taken after his father, Bailey van Breda, who was also a successful businessman, as did Martin's two brothers, Andre and Bailey, who are twins. Martin was described as a visionary when it came to business, and would go on to see and make use of opportunities in many different industries, including home security, education, and in the property market. Teresa and Martin were described as well-suited, and they shared similar values and dreams for a future family. It's said that very early on in their relationship, Martin had indicated that when they had children, he'd love for them to study at Stellenbosch University, and he would also like to have his family live in Stellenbosch one day. On the 10th of July 1992, Teresa and Martin welcomed their first child, a son they named Rudy after Teresa's father. Two years later, on the 1st of November 1994, Henry was born, 
and four years after that, on the 12th of October 1998, the Fun Bradars welcomed their little girl, Miley. A lifelong friend of Teresa's witnessed the formation of this family firsthand. Michelle Barnard and her family were very close to the Fumbradars during their early years, and she would remain friends with Teresa, no matter where in the world the family went after that. Michelle says that for the most part, Rudy, the eldest, was always seen as the achiever in the family. Whatever he set his mind to, he earned, and he clearly took after his father. Michelle says that when they were children, Henry was for the most part the loner. For four years, he was the focus as the youngest child, and when Miley was born, of course, that intense focus shifted, as is only natural. He became the middle child. Miley, Michelle says, was always the sweet child, a gorgeous little girl with blonde locks and an easy smile that crawled into the hearts of all who met her. During these early years, the Fanbradars lived in the Willows in Pretoria. As Martin's businesses became more successful, they moved to a large home in Vatakluf Heights. Holidays were spent in luxurious vacation spots across South Africa and the world. They owned a vacation home in Neisner, as well as a property bordering the Kruger National Park. The crime situation in South Africa was becoming a concern for Martin and Teresa, though, and when Martin acquired the Australian subsidiary of the property group Engel and Falkers in 2006, he and Teresa decided that it was time to leave the country of their birth, to give their children the opportunity to grow up in a less tense environment. When Mali was six, Henry was ten, and Rudy was twelve, the family moved to the leafy Australian suburb of Claremont in Perth. Miley started her school career at Presbyterian Ladies College, while Rudy and Henry attended Scotch College, a private school for boys. Statements from those that had attended with Rudy described him as a popular boy with a contagious smile. He had a large group of friends and an active social life. Rudy continued to achieve in Australia, as he had in South Africa, and excelled in several sports as well as academically. Rudy would become best friends with a young man named Sam Fearon. Fearon would go on to become a successful songwriter and musician, but during his friendship with Rudy, they were just young adventurers. When they were 15 years old, the friends completed a 19-kilometre swim across a channel from Perth to Rotnest. Those who knew Henry would describe him as much quieter and more withdrawn than his brother. He spent many hours gaming on his computer and was quite happy with just his laptop and a tablet. He did not socialise much, and there's no report of him having had a girlfriend in his teenage years. He was described as a loner who kept his thoughts to himself. Now, I just want to pause here and put this into context. All of these statements were made by people after the events that inspire this podcast episode. 
I cannot say whether or not these descriptions were in any way coloured by the events that followed, but I do think that the context is important. I also don't think we should put much stock in these descriptions, because if I'm honest, the description of Henry as a child could be me. I was also not the most social child or teenager. I had a small group of friends. People would probably describe me as a loner. And yes, I kept my thoughts to myself. So, although it's always interesting to hear what people were like as children in a true crime context, personally, I don't think that there are any aha moments here. After graduating from high school, Rudy enrolled for a science degree at the University of Melbourne, which he easily completed, and then he enrolled for a master's degree in mechanical engineering. Henry graduated from high school in 2012 and enrolled in a physics degree, also at the University of Melbourne. Seven years after the Van Breda family had moved to Perth, Martin's property business necessitated another move. This time, the family went to live in Budderham, on the coast of Queensland. Again, the family moved into an impressive home, and Miley, who was now 13, moved schools to Matthew Flinders Anglican College. The young girl was said to be pleased with her new school. The family travelled back to South Africa on holiday often, and also spent holidays in Mauritius and other exotic destinations. Martin still had significant business interests in South Africa, and would fly there on business trips quite regularly. Henry and Rudy continued to live in Melbourne, where they attended university. The boys would join the family in Queensland over holidays and accompany them on family trips when their study schedules allowed for it. In 2014, the global financial crisis meant that the Queensland office of Martin's property business had to close, and almost simultaneously, a new business venture presented itself. Martin had always been interested in the education space, and opening a private school seemed to fit well with his business portfolio. The only catch was, the opportunity for this lay back in their homeland. That same year, Martin, Teresa and Marley moved back to South Africa. Rudy and Henry stayed behind in Australia to complete their studies. The move provided Martin with the opportunity to make another of his dreams come true. He had always wanted to live in Stellenbosch, the town that had become so dear to him when he attended university. So this was where they started to look at houses. The intention was, as Martin had always hoped one of his children would attend his alma mater, that Miley, when she matriculated, could go to the University of Stellenbosch. Despite all the moving she had done in her young life, Miley was excited to be returning to South Africa. It meant she would be able to spend more time around her extended family. The Van Bredars kept their house and vehicles in Australia, as they had intentions of returning there one day. The Dissolza Winelands Golf Estate in Stellenbosch seemed a great fit for the Van Breda family. The estate is set in the Stellenbosch Winelands, 
and its name comes from the surrounding farms. The estate, while being residential in nature, also has an 18-hole golf course and is a working farm in its own right, with olive trees, vineyards and citrus trees. The house the family chose in the estate was located at 12 Horska Street. It was purchased for 4.6 million rand. Some sources that I've read say that the family were only there temporarily, as they were building another house in the estate. Marley was enrolled at Somerset College for her grade 10 year, and by the March of 2014, the family was settled into their new home. In August 2014, Henry joined the family in South Africa. In Julian Janssen's book, he mentions that there were rumours among the extended family that he dropped out of university. According to the University of Melbourne's 2014 academic calendar, classes were indeed still being held at this time of the year, and their schedule for that year shows that exams were to be held in October, November and December, of course depending on the course and level you were at. If Henry had not been at university at that time, he would have not had the opportunity to write his exams. Perhaps the initial idea had been that he would just visit South Africa and return for his exams, but that didn't happen. By December 2014, when his older brother Rudy completed his academic year and joined the family in South Africa for Christmas, Henry was still there. After Rudy arrived, the whole family went on a tour of the country to visit their extended family in Gauteng, and they also spent some time at their holiday home in Nasna. That Christmas holiday was spent surrounded by family. After being separated for so long, the Fambrada and the Toy clans were finally reunited. Teresa enjoyed spending time with her siblings, as did Martin, and Marley, Rudy and Henry met and spent time with their cousins. On the 21st of January 2015, the school year for private schools started in South Africa, and Marley embraced what would be her first full year at Somerset College. Quite a few children that lived in the Desalza estate attended the school, which was the most expensive private school in the country at that time, and a lift club formed to safely shuttle the students on the 10-minute trip to school daily. On Friday the 23rd of January, Theresa phoned her brother Heinrich for his birthday. They chatted for quite some time, and Heinrich would later relay some of the details of that conversation. Theresa said that Rudy was set to return to university the following week, but Henry would be staying with them for a while. He was going to be travelling to KwaZulu-Natal to attend a diving course, and the intention, according to Theresa, was that he would return to Australia for the second term of the academic year. According to the University of Melbourne's academic calendar, the second semester would only have started in July. If this indication from Theresa was correctly understood, that means that Henry would have missed two sets of examinations by then, half of one semester and the entirety of another. While it is not unheard of for students to take time out of their degree courses and then return, 
Henry would have already been quite far behind by this stage. In words that would become frighteningly prophetic, Teresa van Breda described the upcoming weekend to her brother as the last the family would spend together. Of course, at that time she was referring to Rudy leaving for Australia and Henry going on his diving course, but it would indeed be the last weekend they spent together, and not for those reasons. On Saturday the 24th of January, the Van Breda family went shark cage diving in Kant's Bar. On Sunday night, the family had a bra and enjoyed a meal together. According to weather sites, on the 26th of January, the temperature in Stellenbosch was 26 degrees, but with a humidity level of 85%, the heat would have felt stifling. The Fumbradar home was a double story, with the bottom level consisting of the kitchen, a scullery or laundry, the garage, a study, living room and the lounge. In the centre of the house, a large staircase leads up to the top level, where the air-conditioned bedrooms are. Rudy and Henry had been sharing a room, which is the first as you ascend the stairs. If you turn right down the passage after coming up the stairs, Marley's bedroom is on your left-hand side, and then Martin and Teresa slept in the main bedroom at the end of the passage. Each of the bedrooms has its own bathroom, as well as a balcony off each room. If you walk out of Martin and Teresa's bedroom, you look straight down the passage at Rudy and Henry's door. The passageway forms a balcony of sorts, overlooking the dining room area. There's a railing along this passageway as well. There are two flights of stairs leading down from the top floor. The first is longer and ends in a landing area, and the second is shorter and takes you down to the ground floor level. One side of the longer portion of the staircase is open, with just a railing, and on the other side is a wall, which essentially is the backing wall to the room in which Henry and Rudy slept. Monday the 26th would of course have been a school day for Marley, and probably one of the first when she had homework. We only have one version of events to go by for what happened that afternoon and evening. For the most part, it appears that Rudy, Martin and Henry had been watching television in the late afternoon and early evening, while Teresa prepared dinner. Around 6.30pm, Martin opened a bottle of red wine, and both Martin and Henry had two glasses each. There would be conflicting testimony about who had consumed whiskey as well that night, and also suggestion that someone had consumed rum and coke. Henry's version was that he only remembered drinking two glasses of wine, and while he may have had a whiskey, he definitely did not drink any rum and coke. Two used wine glasses and a used whiskey glass were found on a table in the home. Rudy appears to have gone for a run in the estate at some stage, and by quarter past seven the family sat down to dinner. They would have finished eating around 8pm. Martin, Rudy and Henry watched television together for a while and then Martin moved to the dining room table to work on his laptop. 
In photographs of the home, you can see a laptop on the dining room table with some documents beside it. In his initial retelling of the evening's events, Henry would say that they had all watched television together and hadn't mentioned his father working. This would come up only in a later version. It is also only in a later statement that Henry says that he, his father and brother, decided to watch the movie Star Wars using their new surround sound system. While it may not be that important what was remembered when, it will become important later. If I'm honest, in retelling an evening like that, I would likely not tell anyone exactly what I'd watched on television. I would assume, though, that as part of a timeline building, officers would have asked whether they'd watched something on television, or a movie they had on DVD, for instance, as this could help to build or break down credibility. According to Henry, by this time, both Marley and Teresa were in bed. The timelines of who went to bed when that night would also be questioned. Initially, Henry told the police that his father had gone to bed at 9pm, and that he and his brother had stayed up to watch television. Later, this changed to his father having stayed up with them, and only starting the Star Wars movie at 10pm, and then finishing around midnight when they all went to bed. Again, this may all seem completely inconsequential, and perhaps it was. Except there would also be testimony from outside the Funbrador house that night, which would not only call into question the timeline, but also some noises heard coming from the home. The Funbrador's neighbour in Khorska Street, directly across the way from them, is a family called the Optoffs. The balcony leading out of Henry and Rudy's room directly overlooks the Optoff house. Stephanie Optoff was likely preparing for bed on the evening of the 26th of January, when at 10pm she says she heard raised voices in the Funbrador home. Optoff says that it definitely sounded like an argument. Henry denies that there was any argument in the home that night, and this is when the Star Wars movie becomes relevant, because he says that it was the opening scenes and soundtrack of the movie they were watching over the surround sound system that the woman had heard. Optoff would refute this, saying that she knows very well what the Star Wars soundtrack sounds like, and what she heard was not a movie. She says that the shouting continued for some time. By all accounts, at midnight, there was silence in the Funbrador home. Henry says that when he and Rudy went up to bed, Rudy had gone straight to sleep, but he'd stayed up watching an anime series called One Piece on his laptop. He finished watching at 3am on the morning of the 27th of January, and then listened to music for a while. He then says he got up to use the toilet in the ensuite bathroom. In the intro to this episode, you heard me mention a young child waking up around 4am that morning. That child was Stephanie Optoffs. At the time, she would have no idea what had woken him. 
but in just a few hours, everything would start to fall into place. At 12 minutes past seven that morning, a call comes through to Janine Philander. She is an emergency operator at the 107 emergency number in Cape Town. Part of that telephone call is the recording you heard at the beginning of this episode. The caller is Henry van Breda. At this point, he is moving in and outside of his home in Choska Street. A domestic worker arriving for work at one of the neighbours' houses later tells a journalist she saw a young man standing talking on his phone. He was dressed only in grey sleep shorts and white socks. The blood on the shorts shocks her, and she looks the young man in the eyes. She later says that he had a strange, far-away look in his eyes. As she passes, he waves at her, she says. She claims to see urine running down his leg. She scurries to her employer's home, terrified. As Henry van Breda proceeds with his phone call, the Dissolzer estate is waking up. Neighbours are getting ready for work and preparing to face morning traffic to take their children to school. One neighbour sees the young man and immediately knows something is very wrong. He calls the flying squad number 10111. Henry van Breda's call to emergency services will become the source of much debate. The call lasts 25 minutes and is, for the most part, Philander attempting to get the right address. The street that the van Breda's live in would likely not have appeared on emergency services system at that time because it was a street inside an estate. When I called on clients in my previous life as a sales manager, I found the same thing with industrial estates. GPS devices like Garmin's did not have the streets inside the estate, so I would check the map for the estate on the internet and then just use my GPS to get to the closest road and go from there. The public outcry regarding this call was mainly over two things. The first was the frustration about Janine Philander taking so long to get the man's address down. During the call, Henry uses Google Maps to try and find the street closest to his that does come up on the map. He finds an adjoining street name and tells the operator to send the ambulance there. Janine Philander would later testify that she had initially believed that she was receiving a prank call. Prank calls are unfortunately very common on emergency services lines, and her reasoning for this was that Henry sounded very calm and didn't scream, shout, and beg the way most people did in an emergency. She also says that usually in an emergency situation, when she struggles to find an address, the caller will become impatient, but she did not feel that Henry did. Henry's tone during the call would also be called into question, with Henry saying that he had forced himself to stay calm so that he did not stutter and because he knew it was important to get the information across. The other thing that was a major topic of public debate was a sound heard on the recording that many believe is a giggle from Henry. 
Here is the portion of the audio in which the sound can be heard toward the end. Okay. Okay, what kind of injuries is there? Um, my, my, my family and we were attacked by a guy with an oh. axe. With an axe? Hey, unconscious it is. Unconscious, huh? Yes, and bleeding from the head, please. Henry would say that he is not laughing, but rather he is saying the word please. I took that portion of the audio and slowed it down by 50%, so half the speed that he actually says it at, and this is what it sounds like. Here it is again. Now, that sounds like a laugh, doesn't it? Okay. So when you slow sounds down, they automatically change in pitch. So they'll sound deeper than they really are, and when the word or sound is so short, that can make a big difference. So I took the original clip again and I slowed it down, but this time only by 25%. And this is what it sounds like. (coughs) Here it is again. I will admit that sounds a lot more like the word please. But would I have heard the word please if I wasn't listening out for it? That I don't know. Now a disclaimer here, I am no forensic audio technician. I learned this stuff by trial and error and a lot of YouTube tutorials. I had always been as horrified as everyone else by the thought that a young man could be giggling after saying that his family is bleeding from the head. But at this point, I am considering that he is not really giggling there. That aside, there is no denying that the entire tone of this call is strange from Henry's side, and I can fully understand why Philander would have thought it was a prank. None of us really know how we'll react when we're in a situation like this, but I just can't picture myself being that calm. In fact, when I first heard this call, the way Henry enunciates his words and occasionally seems to slur, I thought he might be drunk. Later on in this case, I'll discuss a few things that will come up in the investigation that could have caused this. Because it is so easy for us to say that someone is behaving strangely when we're really only comparing behavior to what we think we would do in a similar situation, I decided to do a bit of an experiment. I listened to the recordings of 50 emergency calls. I thought 50 would be a good pool of data. What I was listening for was how the operator engaged with the person but most importantly, how the person came across on the call. In South Africa, our emergency call recordings are usually not released as a matter of course, so I had to use 911 calls from America. Cultural differences aside, I think it was still a pretty good comparison. There was a bit of a different slant to this experiment, though. I chose calls in which I could determine what the outcome of the call eventually was, and if the person calling had in any way been responsible for the crime. So, firstly, what I found in terms of operators is that Janine Philander is 
far from the most incompetent emergency operator in the world. In fact, she handled the situation relatively well, in comparison to some of the 911 operators I heard. Many of the calls I heard had me cringing in the way that operators were horribly condescending in tone to the caller. One woman was stuck in a car that was sinking in a flood, and the operator told her to stop acting like a child. Sadly, the woman's car was washed away, and she drowned. As for the callers, most were unsurprisingly panicked. The calls start with them shouting down the phone for help, sobbing and pleading, and this continues throughout for the most part. Some start out calm, but as the reality of the situation hits, they break down. There were callers that were what I would describe as calm. For the most part, these were people that were strangers to the victims. They had come across a scene and called for help. They had no emotional link to the situation. Just three callers out of the 50 calls I listened to were closely linked to the victims and also came across as calm on the phone. All three were later found to have been intoxicated in some way, either drunk or having used drugs. Two of those three were actually the perpetrators of the crime in question. So what did I take from this experiment? In an emergency situation, approximately 20 out of 50 people will be able to remain calm in terms of not screaming, sobbing, begging, or otherwise being unable to intelligibly communicate. In 17 of those 20 cases, there was no emotional link to the situation. In three of those 20 cases of calm rapport on the phone, the caller was a family member of the victim, and in all three of those cases, the caller was somehow impaired. In the cases of emotionally linked callers that were impaired, two out of the three would be convicted of the crimes in question. Now I use the word impaired on purpose, because although in the calls I looked at, the people were impaired through the use of substances, there are other ways that you can be impaired, and that will come up later in the case. At 7.37am, Henry van Breda disconnects his call with the emergency line. The first police car to respond is actually responding to the neighbour's 10111 call, not Henry's 107 call, so they arrive within minutes of Henry ending his call. Entry data to the estate would show that the police vehicle arrived at 7.40. They gained entry to the estate at 7.41, and with the assistance of the security guard, it took them less than a minute to arrive at 12 Horska Street. Sergeant Adrian Kleinhans and Constable Marius Jonkers have no idea what they are responding to. They have not yet been told about the axe attacks. The neighbour had been able to provide very little information. They don't immediately see Henry when they arrive and first approach the garage door, and they find it's locked. 
they then approach the window next to the front door, which is standing slightly ajar, and peer inside. The house is dark and still. At this point, of course, the police do not know whether a suspect is still on scene. They need to make sure they aren't walking into an ambush. Guns are drawn, but not aimed. The officers are ready to defend themselves if necessary. At that moment, the front door swings open, and Henry van Breda appears. He's fiddling with his cell phone. Sergeant Kleinhans would testify that the young man was wearing grey sleep shorts and white socks. His shorts had spatters of blood on them, and he noticed a few injuries and blood stains on his chest. He described Henry's demeanour as nervous, very emotional, scared and panic-stricken. He said that although he saw emotion, Henry was not crying but he would describe him as appearing traumatised. The sergeant asked Henry who he was and what the problem was. Henry mumbled something and then pointed to the upper floor of the house, telling the officer that the problem was upstairs. Kleinhans instructs his partner to wait with Henry outside the house. In the court document, It says that one of the officers picks up the family dog and puts her into Henry's lap. I couldn't find any information about where the dog had been at that point, so I asked Julian Janssen, journalist and author of the book The Dissolver Murders, if he knew this is what he had to say. The black dog was in the garage during the massacre upstairs. There's also knowledge that the dog was like a family member and he slept in the house at night. There was, there was no evidence found on that morning that the dog actually was anywhere else in the house because if the dog was, would have been in the house, there would have been hundreds of bloodied paws in the hallways on the stairs because if you approach the upper floor, you will have to wade through pools of blood and lots of blood droplets on the tiled floor. So no, the dog was indeed in the garage. So Sasha, the family's black dog, who was widely acknowledged to be Marley's dog, was locked in the garage. As Julian says, the dog was like a member of the family to the Van Bredaars. She usually slept upstairs. Sasha suffered from joint issues and had to have an injection once a month. When she had this injection, she was quite debilitated, according to evidence, until the effects of the medication eased. Sasha had two beds, one upstairs in the bedroom Henry and Rudy shared, and one downstairs next to the stairs. Henry confirmed that at night, the family would usually carry Sasha upstairs, as although she could climb the stairs normally, she did struggle. Henry would be unable to remember if he or one of his family members had carried the dog upstairs that night. How Sasha came to be locked in the garage is a mystery we'll explore in further detail a bit later. Another question about Sasha was her hearing capability. Henry would claim that she was completely deaf. 
but she was seen to react to noises on the scene that day. In fact, we can hear her barking on Henry's call to the emergency line. More on that later. There's a small diversion I want to make before we get into Sergeant Kleinhunter's entry into the home. The Fumbradar family had two domestic workers and a gardener in their employ. One domestic worker worked for the family on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. The other worked Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. The back door would sometimes be left unlocked for the domestic worker on duty that day to enter. The back door of the house is in an alleyway that backs against the neighbour's wall. It's entered through a small black gate at the end of the alleyway. Julian mentions in his book that before police even arrived on the scene, the family's domestic worker had arrived for work. She had seemingly let herself in the back door, as she normally would have. Minutes later, neighbours heard horrified screams and the woman ran out of the home. When police arrive, she's settled into their vehicle and eventually treated for shock by the paramedics. This domestic worker would not testify in the eventual trial in this case. The domestic worker that did testify was Precious Mkongani, the lady that worked for the Fumbradars on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, as I said, this is a bit of a diversion, but I don't really understand how this happened. If Henry was standing outside when the domestic worker arrived, surely he would have stopped her from entering the house? If he'd been inside when she entered, let's say he was in the kitchen, for instance, surely he would have had to have heard her entering. Would it not be pertinent at that point to rush to her and say, don't come in? But that didn't happen. The woman entered through the back door, which would have led her into the dining room and near the foot of the stairs. She may or may not have seen the blood on the ground, and she may or may not have started to ascend the stairs before eventually seeing the horror that lay before her. At no point is any mention made of Henry running out to the woman or interacting with her in any way. She just seems to walk around aimlessly outside the house in terror until the police arrive and put her into a police car. It's just so odd. As Constable Yonkers waits with Henry and Sasha on the porch, Sergeant Kleinhans then proceeds to enter the home. With his gun drawn, he walks slowly into the entrance hall area. To the right is a staircase. A pool of blood has formed on the tiles directly under the balcony area above him. Although he already has an idea that what he's about to see is not going to be pleasant, when he ascends the stairs and finds the first two victims, he is still shocked and appalled. Two female victims lie at the top of the stairs. Their bodies are next to a bookcase and the entrance to Rudy and Henry's bedroom. The older female is Theresa van Breda. She has gaping wounds to her head, and her face is almost grey. She's dressed in a vest and underwear. The younger female is Marley van Breda. 
Her long blonde hair is soaked in blood, but her face does not have the pallid appearance of her mother. She just looks like she's asleep. With his stomach lurching and every alarm going off in his head, Clan Hunts moves around the female victims and into the first bedroom. In the room, he finds an older male victim, Martin van Breda. He's bent over the top of the bed, facing down, kneeling as though he could have been praying or protecting someone. He's wearing multicolored boxer shorts and has a wound to the back of his head. His body and shorts are stained with blood. Between the two beds on the floor lies a fourth victim. This one is younger. It's Rudy van Breda. He too is dressed only in boxer shorts, and the severity of his injuries prompt the officer to describe it as mutilation. Taking a moment to catch his breath and fully comprehend what he's seeing, Clayne Hunts retreats from the room and back into the hallway. He starts to step around the female victims again, intending to search the other bedrooms, when he sees one of the bodies move. At first, it gives him a fright. For a second, he may have considered it was a normal post-mortem twitch. This is quite a common phenomenon, known as a cadaveric spasm. Clanhunt soon realised, though, that this was not what he was seeing. Marley van Breda had moved her leg, and then she did it again. Clanhunt shouted down to his partner to get an ambulance to the scene immediately. One of the victims was still alive. And that is where I am going to end off part one. I know that it's going to be difficult to wait for part two, but the amount of evidence in this case means that if I want to cover it properly, it has to be done in two parts. In part two, we'll discuss the fate of Marley van Breda. If Marley were to survive and be able to give her version of events, it would help to bolster or refute what the only other surviving person in the house, Henry, had to say. Then we'll discuss the physical evidence at the scene, and here I was assisted with interpretation of the blood evidence by Captain Marius Hubert, a bloodstain pattern and crime scene analyst with the SAPS. We will then also discuss an arrest that would eventually be made, as well as the trial of the accused. You will hear that the version of the surviving, relatively unharmed Van Breda family member is that he and his family were attacked by one or two axe-wielding intruders. At this point in our story, three of the Van Breda family members are deceased. Their friends and family members across South Africa and Australia begin to receive the news that will change all of their lives forever. It is a horrific tragedy, and one that the South African public struggle to contend with. It's not just the nature of the attacks that are shocking, but also the fact that an entire family was targeted in a place that should really be as safe as you could get. It wasn't safe, though, and as journalists, 
more police and paramedics start to pour into the Dizalza estate. The question on everyone's lips was, did this evil come from outside, or was it here all along? I'll do my best to get part two out as soon as possible. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll be back before you know it. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 